0: Let us pray. So Father, we thank you that you are our help and our foundation, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we give you great thanks that you've created us and all people in your image. So now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. so good, as always, to see all of you this morning. Well, it has been a um, busy weekend for some of us. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I'll be preaching on um, related matters this morning. But we... Um, a number of us participated in the snow in the March for Life on Friday and then the Anglicans for Life Life Summit at the Falls Church Anglican yesterday a number of us from All Saints were there in person and others participated via uh, the live stream but a wonderful wonderful time um, I think it was the one of the best lineup of speakers they've ever had and I see Ed and Susie Spear who were there shaking their heads yes just a great great time of learning and instruction um, there are with it being sanctity of life Sunday at the information table. As you come into the atrium, there are informational flyers from Anglicans for life. I'd encourage you to pick one of those up as you leave today and also um, visit the Anglicans for life display table out in the atrium on the far side over by the choir room as well. Well, as we begin talking about the sanctity of human life, it is critical that we affirm the biblical basis for all that we will be talking about this morning. The biblical foundation affirming the value of human life is established at the creation of humankind in the opening sentences of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we read these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This fact, this truth, which is affirmed here in the opening sentences of the book of Genesis, in the opening sentences of all of Holy Scripture, is a divine truth which is affirmed throughout God's holy word. You and I... Every person, did you hear that? Every person is created in God's image. And as bearers of God's image, all persons, regardless of things, including age, born or unborn, race, ethnicity, sex, physical or mental disability, and I could go on, every person is a bearer of God's image and there is nothing that human beings can do to objectively alter this eternal truth. When the Anglican Church in North America was established, one of the things that was paramount to our founding fathers and mothers in in our movement and in our denomination was to affirm this biblical truth that all human beings are created in the image of god and that all life is sacred it was so important that it was incorporated into our canons our bylaws as a church canon eight section three reads this god and not man is the creator of human life the unjustified taking of life is sinful Therefore all members and clergy are called to promote and respect the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death. As I emphasize every time I talk about the sanctity of human life and what we call pro-life issues, the biblical foundation must always be our starting point. We must begin with the fact that God himself Has established this truth and we must begin at the place of embracing a comprehensive all-embracing biblical worldview regarding the God-given sanctity of all human life and then from that position of a life-affirming biblical worldview we speak biblically to specific issues and specific concerns. Now, so often in in Christian circles, it works the opposite way. We home in on one particular issue or one particular thing that may be our soapbox without having embraced an all-encompassing, biblical, life-affirming worldview. That must be the starting place. Now today for our scripture readings, we varied or deviated from the appointed lectionary to um, scriptures that were um, suggestions for um, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so each of our scriptures today focuses on a specific aspect of a life-affirming biblical worldview. We'll look at these scriptures, particularly our gospel reading from John 4, but as we do that, in addition to hearing an all are much more comprehensive biblical worldview expressed from God's word. We will also see some major points of continuity with the things I've been speaking about in my sermons since the first of the year over the past few weeks. So let's begin with looking at some of these texts and some applications. Let's begin with our Psalm this morning from Psalm 139, our Psalm Psalm 139, which affirms that God has ordained life from the moment of conception as being of infinite worth because that worth again is assigned to human life by God himself. Look at verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 139 that we read just a little while ago. For you yourself made my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and my soul knows it very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and fashioned in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my substance while I was yet unformed. And in your book were all my members written, which day by day were, day by day were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. <clears throat> the sanctity of human life in the womb is an absolutely critical starting point. And certainly when affirming a biblical Life affirming worldview concerned to prevent the direct taking of innocent human life at all stages must be paramount. But we can't stop there. Let's take some time to dive into our gospel reading from John chapter 4. Jesus' encounter with the woman, the Samaritan woman, in John 4 gives us important insights which help us to broaden, or if you will, fill out. And develop a more thoroughgoing biblical worldview of life. Jesus breaks all kinds of societal expectations and social mores of his day to share the divine truth of God with this woman. And part of what he does in this encounter is to affirm her divinely assigned, her divinely given worth as a person created in God's image the encounter begins as jesus stops to rest at this well well in the town of sychar in samaria now clearly jesus has been walking all morning he is thirsty from the journey and it's the sixth hour around noon and it's the heat of the day in that region of the world in jesus day and to some extent to this very day people take a break from their labors at midday because the heat can be so oppressive yet this particular woman comes to the well at that time in the heat of the day this was unusual women typically came to draw water in the early morning hours when it was still cool however this woman's arrival in the middle of the day seems to be due to the fact that she was held in moral disrepute and ostracized by her fellow villagers especially the women of the village. Now, as we talk about this a little bit, I think the fact that Jesus was in Samaritan Samaria and that this was a Samaritan woman needs to be unpacked a little bit to help with our understanding. Now, the Samaritans, we might ask, where did they come from? When, if you remember Old Testament history and Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and earlier than the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was swept into captivity under the Assyrians. Um, When that happened, there was a small remnant of people that remained in the region that is defined as the northern kingdom. And as well, over time, some of those people trickled back into the area. But what happened was they became assimilated with the surrounding pagan Canaanite cultures. And their religion, and this comes out in Jesus' encounter with this woman, their religion was very syncretistic. In other words, it was a blending or a melding of certain Old Testament beliefs, certain Jewish beliefs, with Canaanite beliefs and pagan religions all around them. They still held, to some extent, to the social and moral codes of the Jews. They believed that the Old Testament law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, were scripture. But they rejected any of the writings of the Old Testament prophets. And the Samaritans also rejected what we know as, or call typically in theology, the writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, books of that nature, Song of Solomon. But the fact is, Samaritans and Jews despised each other. Pardon the term, but from the Jewish perspective, they viewed Samaritans essentially as half-breeds. And there are three specific ways as we look at this encounter in which Jesus violates the social stigmas of his day to affirm this Samaritan woman's intrinsic worth in God's eyes despite the fact of where she came from her ethnic derivation and despite her sinfulness and brokenness. So there are three specific aspects I want to talk about. I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. I want to give credit to both Leon Morris and Craig Keener for their commentaries on the Gospel of John, particularly this passage, which were um, essential in me developing these points. Point one, Jesus breaks the Jew-Samaritan barrier or the socio-ethnic barrier barrier. As i said just a minute ago jews and samaritans despised each other and like so many conflicts in human history this was a conflict and a hatred that went back for centuries jews considered samaritans unclean and in a pretty extreme way and therefore any contact with a samaritan rendered a jew ceremonially unclean. This is why the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 was so unsettling and so shocking when it was first preached by Jesus. But let me give you a few more examples so you get a picture of how extreme the antagonism was. The, The Mishnah or oral tradition of Jewish law says this, the daughters of Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle. In other words, they are perpetually and permanently ceremonially unclean. He goes on to say he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine An incredibly strong statement. Other teachings stated that a Samaritan conveys uncleanness by what he lies, sits or rides on by his spittle and by his wine. That may be TMI, but I think you get the picture. And here we have in light of these teachings, Jesus not only talking to this woman, but he also asks her to give him a drink. And the inference is from the very ladle from which she was drinking. Think about what I just read a minute ago. Uncleanness by his spittle, and by his wine, and Jesus says, give me a drink from your ladle. Jesus went to great lengths, and he took great risks to reach this woman. Jesus moved beyond Centuries of antagonism and racial and cultural hatred. He moves beyond the prejudices and biases that permeated the Jewish Samaritan relationship to bring her the water of eternal life that comes through him. To affirm her intrinsic worth in the eyes of God as a person, as a woman created in the image of God. That should challenge you and me. It should challenge you and me to press beyond cultural prejudices and racism and ethnic prejudice that are hindrances to the gospel, to take great risk even in the eyes of a culture at times that might frown upon us to give people the living water of Jesus Christ, to bring to those who need to hear it the good news of the gospel, those who are created In God's very image, God calls us to do that with the same kind of risk taking that Jesus engaged in. Because people, all people are created in the image of God. Second, Jesus breaks the gender barrier. In much of the ancient and even parts of the modern Near East, women were regarded or are regarded by many essentially as property. You think about many of the um, conservative Muslim cultures in the Middle East where women are relegated to the back rooms of the house and aren't even ever allowed to come out into the front areas. And they're not allowed to go out in public unless they're covered from head to toe and accompanied often by a man. I had the experience... um, when I was a hospital chaplain serving at one of the health systems in the Baltimore area, I was walking between buildings at the hospital complex one day, and one of the doctors I knew said, stop, you to have to wait here a minute. The Queen of Dubai is getting ready to come by. And it was the Queen of Dubai who was there for medical treatment, and all of a sudden, this entourage pulled up with multiple black SUVs and a security detail, all the things you think about with, with heads of state or that sort of thing. And she gets out, And even as the queen of Dubai, she couldn't go into a medical appointment see a doctor without a man being with her the entire time, including in the exam room. And what do we see Jesus doing? He talks to this woman in extended conversation. Not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. In a culture where Jewish men were taught to avoid any unnecessary conversation, with women, And when we're talking about holy and just and healthy conversation, this was never God's design or intention. And once again, what Jesus is demonstrating is that she, this woman, this Samaritan woman is of infinite value because she's created in the image of God. We as the people of God need to affirm the beauty of biblical womanhood. That every person, every woman is created in the image of God and not fall into some of the traps that have been justified in Scripture through the centuries where we're supposed to have women as men under our thumbs. But that requires both a biblical understanding, that is way beyond the scope of this sermon today, biblical womanhood, but it also requires a clear understanding of biblical manhood and what that looks like third Jesus transcends the moral barrier the woman came to the well alone because she was not welcome among the other women of the village there was shame there was ostracization to be clear Jesus confronts her sin Let's not kid ourselves, he doesn't ignore or whitewash it. Look at verses 16 through 23. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. That's not tiptoeing around anything. The woman said to him sir I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship Jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Yes, Jesus clearly and directly confronts her sin, but he does it in a way that affirms her worth in the eyes of God and that offers deliverance and redemption. Restoration of the fullness of the image of God in her. We are created in God's image. But she, like every one of us through the fall and through sin nature has lost that moral image of God. But God intends through Jesus and his transforming power to restore that to every one of us. And throughout the gospels, we see Jesus who was without sin, fellowshipping, eating, and in other ways engaging with people who were living in overtly sinful lives across the entire social spectrum. Rich, poor, young, old, men, women, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, those who were ensnared in all kinds of public and private sin, those who were demon-possessed. And we see Jesus reaching out to them with the water of life. What sin is it that Jesus cannot cleanse? I know we say, yes, Jesus cleanses from all sin, but how often do we fall into the trap? Either pointing at someone else and even perhaps sometimes more often with some of us sitting right here, looking at our own lives and saying, yes, Jesus forgives but he can't forgive me or heal me or or get me past that sin whatever it is for you whatever it is for that person some of our speakers yesterday talked about this in beautiful and wonderful ways in relation to abortion not only women who have had abortions but men who have supported or, or encouraged abortions and people who have been involved in counseling people to have abortions or have participated in performing abortions or engaged in euthanasia. And so often they come to the Lord, but there's this wall and there's this feeling that I can't share this with anyone because it's too dark and I'm covered with ashes. when the truth is Jesus can cleanse us and make us whiter than snow. No matter what it is. No matter what it is. And we need to reach out to those people with the water of life that Jesus offers. But It's also important to note, as Craig Keener notes in his commentary on this, Jesus had fellowship with people publicly recognized as sinful. Hear this. But the influence went from Jesus to them rather than the reverse. God calls us to go and engage and befriend and love and come alongside. But we need to be careful that we don't somehow fall into or justify sinful behaviors in reaching people. The influence went from Jesus to them. Our influence must go in Jesus name to them as they come to him. So we're to be like Jesus, then we will do by God's grace and power, the things we see him doing in scripture. We will walk in ever-increasing obedience to the scriptures which call us to value every person as someone uniquely created in God's image. The unborn, the medically vulnerable, the disabled, the poor, as we've read about, or we heard read in the epistle from James, the fatherless and widow, the sojourner and alien in our midst, as we heard read, and our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy this morning. Carl Truman yesterday, one of the speakers, quoted from this text in Deuteronomy. And now, to be clear, I didn't pick it because Carl Truman talked about it yesterday. I selected these readings a week and a half ago. I prepare my sermons on Tuesdays. And Carl Truman, referring to this text from Deuteronomy, said, Reaching out to the sojourner, the alien in our midst, is not an option, it's an obligation. I would go beyond that even and say, to add this one qualifier, it is a holy obligation. Did you hear that? Regardless of what the culture says around us, we are to reach out, and this is consistent throughout all of scripture, we are to reach out as the people of God to the stranger and the alien and the sojourner in our midst and invite them in. Remembering even as Jesus said here, or our scripture reading said, God's people too, at one time, were aliens and strangers in Egypt, remembering that our Lord himself and his family were refugees. We must speak truth. We must speak love. We must model and speak the redeeming, transforming truth of Jesus to those around us who are wounded, broken, alienated, written off, and pushed to the margins by the world. And we need, brothers and sisters, by God's grace, to stand as those living epistles of God's truth. We need to remember that Jesus, the people need to encounter Jesus through us as living epistles, instruments in God's hands. The fact is we're not going to convince anyone or change people simply through arguing or debating with them. Too many Christians have tried that way too long. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean that we don't engage the culture, but people are transformed. People encounter Jesus as we become those living epistles he calls us to be. Look what happened with the Samaritan woman in verses 39 through 42 of John 4. This ties in directly with what I've been talking about in sermons since the first of the year. She encountered Jesus. She received the water of life. She was transformed and what did she do? She told her story and they came. Samaritans in the village came. They encountered Jesus and they believed and they too were transformed. Author Kenneth Bailey in his book Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes that was published by IVP academic in 2008 tells the story of traveling in the Middle East while living in the south of Egypt a group of friends and I traveled into the Sahara desert by camel as our trek began the temperature soared above 110 Fahrenheit in the shade and there was no shade on our way one goat skin water bag leaked all of its precious contents out with the consumption high due to the heat we ran out of water and for a day and a half we pressed on while enduring intense heat at that point the goal of the excursion was a famous uh, well named well named Beers Shaitun, deep in the desert our guide promised us that it was never dry ah uh, but we could survive could we survive to reach its life-giving liquid silver my mouth became completely dry and eating was impossible because swallowing felt like the rubbing of two pieces of sandpaper together my vision became blurred and the struggle to keep moving became harder with each step we knew that if that well was dry our armed guards would probably force us to surrender our bags and our three baggage camels and they would have ridden them back to the valley, leaving the rest of us to die. They, didn't find, they did indeed find that water at the well and um, were resuscitated and revived. But I think this is a picture of what people around us spiritually so often look like. They are dry to the place where their vision is blurred. They can't even swallow food because their throat is so dry spiritually or figuratively. It feels like sandpaper. And they struggle to move and even take one step. And Jesus calls us, he calls you and me to offer them the water of living life that comes through him that will cause them to thirst no more. Scholar Henry Knight, writing about the ministry of John Wesley in an academic journal um, called NUMA about 15 years ago, wrote this. The best evidence for the truth of the gospel is not in the plausibility of our arguments, but in the integrity of our lives and communities. Wherever are found people who name the name of Jesus and who actively love God and their neighbor, great credibility will be given to the gracious power and love of God. Did you hear that? Let me read that again. The best evidence for the truth of the gospel was not the plausibility of our arguments, but in the integrity of our lives and communities. Wherever people are found who name the name of Jesus and who actively love God and their neighbor, great credibility will be given to the gracious power and love of God. How are we doing with our credibility, with actively loving God and our neighbor, so that it brings truth and credibility to the gracious power and love of the God that we serve? Do we affirm God's image in every person from conception in the womb to natural death? regardless of how they've been relegated or pushed to the margins by our culture or by the world around us? Do we love them with the love that God has lavished on us? And indeed, that is what he has done. He has lavished his love on us. That's what God calls us to do and he calls us to do it in ever greater measure as we continue serving him. And do we truly love them even those whose behaviors or ways of life we might find offensive and even repulsive? Do we love them in both word and deed in a way that is credible and invite them to come in and drink of Christ's living water? God calls us to do that. God enables us and empowers us to do that. And he will indeed use us in those ways if we yield to him. What about to those of us, and, and I know there are folks sitting here because we're human, who are broken, broken and wounded, or perhaps you're in that place where you think, yes, God forgives and God heals and God sets free, but not this one thing in me, not this one thing in my past, maybe that nobody knows about. Yes, he does and he can take that and he can set you free and he can heal you and he can transform your brokenness and he can take those ashes and trade them for his beautiful transforming work and his grace, whatever that is. And you may say, well, I could never tell anybody about that or I could never talk about that to anyone. I would suggest as possibly one starting point, make an appointment with one of the priests of this church for a formal confession. And I say that because that seal is inviolable. When it's in a formal confession, it can never be discussed with anyone. Or perhaps you need to go to a trusted friend in this church. Open yourself and let God touch you. Let God heal you. Let God renew you heal those deep, deep wounds and hurts, whatever that might be. You know, I, I said to this is not just about abortion and pro, these pro-life issues. This is about whatever in your life is hindering you from fully reflecting that image of God and God's transforming power and grace. But I said to Susie Speer yesterday at um, during one of our breaks at the um, conference, I said, I think it's time to have soon to have another abortion recovery class. And so there will be totally confidential. You can talk to Susie in private. If you need her cell phone number, it will be made public a little bit later here to call directly. God wants to heal you, but not just that, whatever it might be. God wants to heal you. God wants to set you free. And he calls us to be agents of his grace and his love and his transforming power to reach out to people all around us in the church and in the community, people in the community who don't know Jesus, and offer them this very water of life, this love, which God has lavished on us. Because all of us, all of us are bearers of his image. And he wants to restore to fullness that moral image through his transforming power and grace in every one of our lives because he loves us that much. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for the the love that is beyond comprehension that you have lavished on us. And father, thank you for the incredible risks our Lord took. the eternal son of God took in coming to this world to set us free, to cleanse us, to die for our sin, to offer us and all who would come to him the water of life, to offer us healing, forgiveness, deliverance, transformation, making us new creations in him. Father, thank you that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that's beyond the reach of the cleansing blood of Christ. So Lord, remind us of that as we reach out to those around us, as we become those living epistles, as our lives credibly reflect who you are. And Lord, remind us of that in this church and in our lives individually, that you do indeed forgive. You do indeed heal You take that which is blackened and um, marred by ashes and you make us whiter than snow. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us that you never leave us as you find us but you transform us into your image in ever greater measure. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.